why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Well, it, it, it may seem counterintuitive to sing, praise, say, praise be to God after reading a section of the psalm like that. And here in this psalm, David seems to be going through a bit of a roller coaster of emotion. In, in one moment, he seems like things are, he's feeling stable, and then in the next, he seems unstable. And as we express this today, I, I hope that you will find, as we explore together, that this is the reality of the human condition. And many of us can identify with this. That the reality of the human condition is that some days things seem to be good. And then the next they don't. Or maybe if it's even in the same day. One moment it seems to be okay and then in the next it doesn't. As Dave shared, maybe it's even a season of time where it just seems, everything seems to be going wrong. And there is pain, there is grief, there is a suffering that you can identify with. Well, this psalm in particular, Psalm 22, it can be broken into two sections, and we're going to look primarily at section one, although we're not going to forget section two because it is important, but we're primarily going to be looking at section one, which is verses one to 21. So if you want to be taking notes, you can mark that down. Verses one to 21 is really the, the first section of this psalm, and then the, the final section is verses 22 to 31. And David in this psalm is, he's pleading to God. And we get that. So rather than wasting any more time, let's jump right in. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, we're going to start with. David begins with, My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. David begins by questioning God. He's crying out to God in deep personal despair. And each question he asks in these first two verses intensifies. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? David is like many of us in the midst of pain and suffering. We ask the question, why? Now this question here is actually a question that many people in our world, those that are skeptics of Christianity or strong atheists say, you can't believe in a theistic God. Because if a loving and good and all-powerful God exists, then there would be no reason for evil and suffering, especially evil and, evil and suffering that seems to have no reason behind it. You've maybe heard this before. Maybe someone that you know, maybe a neighbor, coworker. I can't believe in God, they say, because if there is a loving and perfect God, he would not allow this type of suffering that I'm seeing in this world. This is a problem. And, and I got to be honest that if you are a follower of Jesus and you've never wrestled with this question, I'd encourage you to wrestle with it because of all of the reasons against Christianity, I have to say personally, this is the hardest one. Because as you look about the world, you see what would appear to be a lot of meaningless suffering. And we ask the question, God, why? Now, as many of us can identify, it's, it's natural and it's completely normal to, to feel things, to think things like this. But I would say that from a philosophical level, there are a few reasons why it still makes sense in the midst of evil, pain, and suffering to believe in an all-good and loving God. And the first reason is this one. Just because you can't imagine a good reason why God would allow pain and suffering doesn't mean there isn't a good reason for why he would allow it. Meaning just because you and I can't interpret or understand why he would allow, there may just be one. Because for you and for me, we have a limited scope and understanding, right? We, think we are finite. We're not infinite. We have no idea why. We have no idea the, the larger story. Uh, case in point, many of us can identify that with time and a little bit of perspective, sometimes we can look back on a season of pain and suffering and, and say, okay, there was something there. As Tim Keller will argue in The Reason for God, he says, if, if you have a God that's uh, transcendent enough to be mad at in the midst of human pain and suffering, you must also have a God that, that certainly must have a reason and transcendent enough to not let you know the reason for why he's allowing pain and suffering to happen in the first place. Second thing as part of that is that, you know, we can get mad at God quite a bit for things that he has allowed. But what about the things that he hasn't allowed that we'll never see? God is still God in those moments. Second philosophical reason is that if anything, I, I truly believe that if pain and suffering, they actually point to God's existence. 
Because if we sense that there is something off or unjust about our world, does that not reveal that we were made for another one? Or that if we desire justice, there must be some form of true justice? Alvin Plantinga writes this, Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? He writes, I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligations of any sort, and thus no way to say there is such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. That if we can say, this, this isn't right, this doesn't make sense, then what you're doing in that moment is leaning into an absolute reality, an absolute truth that says, yes, you're right, this is not good. And then the third reason is that you've got to look at all of the worldviews, and they all have to account for the problem of pain and suffering. And so if you're sitting here and you're a skeptic of Christianity, maybe you represent secularism or humanism or atheism, how do you answer the question of human problem of pain and suffering? Because every worldview has to make sense of it. If you are from the background of New Age philosophies, Uh, These philosophies deny the reality of evil. They claim that negative events or moral evils are not real. They're simply illusions. So imagine counseling somebody in the midst of pain and suffering and saying, the feelings that you have are simply illusions. That doesn't seem like a very wise worldview. Or how about Hinduism, which believes that evil and suffering is simply the result of karma. What goes around comes around. Now, all of us can connect to the point of if you make a bad decision, there are consequences. But karma in Hinduism says that the life that you're going to live after you live in this one is a direct result of the life that you lived before that one that you lived. So in parts of the world where this is very popular, Hinduism is a world religion, you can actually not get involved in social justice efforts because you might be acting against their karma that they're experiencing from a past life. Certainly that is not a very helpful perspective. Or atheism says, evil and suffering prove a theistic God cannot exist. Evil is a result of natural causes, and it's, it's basically the survival of the fittest. Potentially get over it. Personally, as I've already expressed, I think there's good reasons that evil and suffering actually point to God's existence. Christianity, on the other hand, it says that our trajectory is restoration and consummation. Therefore, our pain and suffering, though allowed, are not meaningless. It says that God is just and will execute justice when he returns. We read that through Jesus, God in flesh, God redeems that which is broken. Humanity's rebellion and sin is the cause of pain and suffering. God created a perfect world in which he was in perfect relationship with humanity. And our rebellion and sin broke that. This is the Christian's perspective on the problem of pain and suffering. Now all of this said, while this may be helpful, it doesn't necessarily address emotional pain. And in the midst of that, God allows us to question him. Right? Because I could have given you these reasons and said, now get over it, 
focus on the factual realities, the philosophical realities. But that's not our human experience, nor is it the experience of the writers of the scriptures. So where does David go next? Verse 3. He writes, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. If you look at the original language, yet you, the way that it's put there, it's trying to express the challenge that David is actually facing in saying, yet you. He's saying, why have you forsaken me? Yet you. He's trying to help us understand that in the midst of pain, he's struggling to identify, yet you. Yet you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, verse 4. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Notice what David does. He's struggling to experience God because there's absolute silence. But look what he does. He goes backwards. Because his experience in the present is not that God is faithful. He feels that. But he knows that God has been faithful in the past. And this is critical for those of us who are in the midst of something right now or have been or will be, which all of us will, is that David leans into God's past faithfulness to provide perspective in his present. While David is not currently experiencing God's faithfulness, he reverts to God's past acts of deliverance. And some of us have been in situations where we've gone through this before. Where it's like, I don't understand what you're doing now. But man, 20 years ago, that was good. Or, not even from your own experience, you're just looking at the experience of other people, and you're like, for them, it was good. Because you're grasping at straws. And so, in your present, you look backwards to give you some perspective on your present. David continues, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Now David's self-image is taking a hit. He's less than a human. His human dignity seems lost when God is absent and people are rejecting him. These people that are mocking him, they say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. People are mocking David because David is saying, I trust in the Lord. Yet people are like, Well, look what God has done for you. Nothing. They're, they're believing that David must be either one, a hypocrite in his boast for God, or that God does not actually love him. Because if God did love you, David, you wouldn't be going through this. And this is the temptation and struggle when we're suffering, is that the dangerous temptation and struggle and suffering is to equate God's faithfulness with our faithfulness. You've been there before? Maybe the question went something like this. If only I had more faith, then God would heal me. If only I hadn't done blank, things would be so much different. God must be punishing me. Maybe you might have said, I must not love God as much as I say I do. Or you've believed a false gospel that is, turn your life over to Jesus and you'll be wealthy and perfectly healthy. 
And here is David in the crosshairs of what is always a struggle and temptation, if we're honest. That he could equate God's faithfulness, that God is not being faithful to me because I'm not being faithful to God, so therefore it's my fault of what I'm going through. And friends, that is a dangerous lie to believe. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but maybe you've been with somebody who was in the hospital or someone who's going through pain and suffering, and you prayed, and you said, God, we ask that you would heal this person. I believe in faith that you will heal this person. And God, for whatever reason, doesn't heal them. And maybe someone along the lines, or you begin believing that if, I guess I didn't have enough faith. Because if I'd had more faith. So it's my fault, ultimately, then, that this person is suffering. That is a dangerous lie. We will never ultimately know, at least on this side of heaven, why God has ultimately allowed certain things. And some would even say that you might even know As Dave shared, he knew Jonathan was with Jesus, but it didn't change the pain that he felt in the experience. God is faithful. Period. When things are good and when things are bad, God is faithful. So we can see David struggling. And that's why in the next verses he calls upon God's faithfulness in his covenant, the relationship that God made with him. So verse 9, yet you. (laughs) See, he's going back. He was just in verse 6 saying he's a worm and not a man. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. He's going back now to the very beginning. Saying, God, you had a plan for me from the very beginning. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So he's saying, God, because of all this, verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. He's saying, God, you were there at the beginning with me. I believe that you've had a purpose and plan for my life. So show it to me now. Be not far from me. Then he goes on. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Now, this is leaning in here. David's leaning into a bit of knowledge of the day. The Bashan was an area that was elevated. It had a lot of vegetation. And so the bulls of Bashan were strong. They were seen to be proud. So he's saying his enemies in this time are encompassing him. They're surrounding him. They're strong. They're proud. Verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He's saying they want to rip my life apart. He's using vocabulary of lions. And then in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is well melted within my breast. Notice the metaphors he's using. I am like water. I am like wax. These are not solids. He is not feeling solid. He's physically 
in pain. Have you been there? Where it just doesn't feel like it's an emotional challenge now, it's a physical challenge? I am, I'm wax? He writes, my strength is dried up like a postured and my tongue sticks to my jaws. My tongue sticks to my jaws. He, he can't even speak. He's thirsting. Verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Now this is interesting because David here seems to be holding God responsible. You lay me in the dust of death. You've allowed this. Heaven forbid you might have even brought this. He goes on, returning to the enemy. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is his experience, but in verse 19, now David turns and cries for help. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Now we live in this day and age where dogs are household creatures that we train right? So we're reading this and we're going, my precious life from the power of the dog. You mean Sammy? Like, sorry, Sammy. Um, first name that came to me that could be a dog's name. You mean Sammy? Fred? Let's go Fred. Fred? He, he just wants me, he just wants to come and lick my toes and my hands. Like, in this day and age, dogs were the ones that were in the garbage heaps. They were not the trained animals that we now experience. They were ones that came and took whatever they could. They were ravenous. And so let's lean into the proper language here when he says the dogs. My precious life from the power of the dog, not Fred, something different. Save me, verse 21, from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. David understands that despite his feelings of being forsaken, the only way out of his pain and suffering is through God's deliverance. He cannot do it on his own. This is a scary place for any human being to come to. So have you come to this place? Have you come to the place of, I can't get myself out of the situation. Only God is going to be capable of doing something. Because this is where David is. Whether it's a pain and suffering you face today or your guaranteed pain and suffering that you will face tomorrow or the next day, do you believe that you can do it on your own? Get yourself out of it. Because David, as low as he gets... As powerful as he maybe felt he could be with his mighty men, he couldn't get himself out of it. 
the lowest experience of pain and suffering. I can't get out. I need transcendent help. Now, some of you are maybe aware of the similarities of this psalm to an act that happens later in the scriptures. And I want to read that for us now. Matthew 27, verse 27 to 51. So though written a thousand years prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, commentators are baffled by the psalm's similarities to the situation of Jesus on the cross. So allow me to read Matthew 27, verses 27 to 51. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gal. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads forty and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Do you notice the similarities? Firstly, as David was mocked in verses 6 to 8 by his enemies, so Jesus is mocked by his Secondly, as David thirsted, his tongue clinging to his jaw, Jesus expresses thirst on the cross. John 19, verse 28. Thirdly, as David was laid by God to the dust of death, Jesus is laid to death on the cross. Fourthly, as David felt abandoned by God, Jesus was abandoned by his eternal Father on the cross. 
Now we ask the question, you might be saying, why are you making the comparison? Because on the cross, Jesus does what David could never do. David suffered for himself, but Jesus suffers for everybody else. Three points I want to make. On the cross, Jesus, one, was abandoned by his Father so that you and I don't ever have to be. Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Men by the last name of Ellsworth writes this, The ultimate penalty for sin is God-forsakenness forever. It is to be separated from God in that place of eternal destruction, hell. And in order for Jesus to bear that penalty, he had to be forsaken by God. So why do we make the comparison? Because Jesus was forsaken. So that you and I never have to be forsaken by God. So that we can turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Which leads us to the second point. On the cross, Jesus bore the pain and consequences of the world's sin so we don't have to bear our sin and our shame any longer. 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him... We might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus was not suffering for any wrong that he did. He was suffering for the wrong that you and I have committed, are committing, and will commit in the future. Yet he dies so we don't have to bear the consequences of eternal separation from our Heavenly Father but that, so that we can be in perfect relationship with him and that our sin and shame is forever forgiven. And thirdly, on the cross, Jesus experiences the full range of human emotion so he could identify and empathize with suffering and free us from its consequences and hopelessness. On the cross... Jesus was abandoned and he felt that way by his father and is experiencing it. So when we cry out to God and say, I feel abandoned, Jesus knows how you feel. When you're feeling lost. Remember Jesus before going to the cross in the garden. He asked this cup to pass from him. Another way. The Father makes it clear, no son, this is the only way. Okay, Father. A relationship that had been eternal. In this moment, there was going to be that separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this isn't where it ends for those of us that are followers of Jesus. 
we then know of the resurrection. And Jesus comes back to life, defeating the power of sin and death and showing what the biblical vision for our experience truly is. Resurrection and hope. I love what Tim Keller writes in The Reason for God. He writes this. We could have it on the screen. The biblical view of things is resurrection. Not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even better. Every worldview must account for the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. The Christian worldview, through the cross and through the resurrection, says all things will be redeemed and restored. And you might be sitting in a situation where you say, this is irredeemable. This cannot be restored. Have hope. It will be redeemed and it will be restored. This is good news. So how do we respond? Well, go back with me to the psalm. Verse 22 it is likely that there has been a gap of time between verses 21 and 22 because David in this section now tells of the peace of redemption, the peace of restoration that he has felt. He says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. See David's experience? He's crying out in the first half and the second section he says, you answered me. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those, before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. David ends his psalm with public praise. And isn't this also a prophetic word forward to what we now understand post-resurrection? That we sit here knowing that our pain and suffering does not have the final word, but Jesus will have the final word? Do we sit here knowing that one day Jesus, our King, will return? That justice will be done? That our pain and suffering will be able to see it in the light of what it means and how it points to him and how then we get to worship him because of what he's done? At that day, it will all begin to make sense. 
But this is the only reason for the hope that we have, if you are a follower of Jesus, that Jesus has come back to life, and that he has gone to prepare a place for us, and that he will return. Otherwise, we pain, we go through pain, and we suffer, and it's meaningless. But we are told that it is not meaningless, that Jesus has overcome the grave. He's taken our place and will be forever, eternally with him. Amen? Let's pray. If you would like to be prayed for, I would invite you to come forward. We'll have our prayer team here who would like to pray with you. And please hear me. The the second part of this message today does not mean that you can't ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It certainly didn't mean that for David, and it certainly doesn't need to mean it for you. David, as we said last week, was a man after God's own heart. If a man after God's own heart can't be honest with him, you can be honest with him. So if in your honesty, you come forward and you say, I need prayer. Because I've come to the point where I realize I can't deliver myself. The only one that's going to deliver me is Jesus. The only one that's going to get me out of this feeling of being a worm, of being like water and wax, is the Holy Spirit. So come forward. As Jesus said, let all who thirst come to me, and you'll never be thirsty again. So come. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what the gospel is, that a sinful people can come to a perfect and holy God because our perfect and holy God has made a way for us to come. And I thank you that our sin and our shame do not have the final word, that even for some of us that have inflicted pain and suffering upon other people, may we come to the foot of the cross and might we ask for the forgiveness of our sin that we would be forgiven. And I thank you, Jesus, for what the resurrection means, the hope that it brings. That our pain and our suffering do not have the final word, but that, Jesus, you have the final word. And you're going to come back and you're going to redeem and restore all that is broken. So for those of us that are sitting in broken places, I pray that we would hear the words of hope and truth this morning, that you're a God who loves us and that you're calling us to be your people. And so God, may we also respond by bringing hope and restoration to the world with the good news of what you have done. May those who look upon us in our pain and suffering see the difference of our worldviews versus their own. That even in the midst of our pain and suffering, we put our hope in Jesus who suffered for us, who was abandoned so we don't have to be. So God, we turn to you. We thank you that you're with us. And even when it doesn't feel like you are, I thank you that you are. And that you've made all of that possible through Jesus and the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.